to our new Think Bites episode for the Sex Research and Resistance podcast with the Open University. Um, before we get into today's topic, I've got a big favour to ask you for those who are listening. We would love it if you could like and subscribe our podcast. It really helps grow our audiences and grow our reach. So if you're into the kind of stuff that we're talking about, please do share it with your networks and subscribe. So today's topic, we're actually talking about researching queerness and bisexuality across generations. It's a two-parter episode and we've got three fantastic guests talking a little bit about their research in this space, the approaches that they use, some key issues that keep coming up. Um, And we're going to think about what that means for kind of practical tips for research in this space. Um, So do, if you listen to part one, make sure you listen to part two as well. But without further ado, I will hand over to my colleague, Dr. Rebecca Jones at The Open University. Thank you. Uh, So yes, I'm Rebecca Jones and I'm a senior lecturer in health at uh, The Open University in the UK. Um, And I do research about aging and I do research about sexuality across the life course. And particularly I do research about sexuality in later life And within that, particularly about bisexuality and ageing. And um, when Elizabeth um, asked me to help do one of these uh, Think Bites, I thought of the two people that I have here in this room, both of whom I have worked with for many, many years in academic and activist kind of spaces, um, but who I realised didn't know each other. And I thought they might well like to talk to each other and get to know each other a little in this form. So um, on that basis, I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves and perhaps say a little bit about how we met and what we've done together. Um, Let's start with Sarah. Yeah, well, thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this, Rebecca. I really appreciate it. Um, So my name is Sarah Jen. I use she, her, and hers for pronouns. I am an assistant professor at the University of Kansas, and I also study bisexuality and aging. I first came across Rebecca's work on using narrative and really highly interpretive uh, methods of research to explore sexuality and aging when I was a doctoral student. And I uh, discovered her work on bisexuality and aging was just so excited to find someone else who did similar kinds of work because there are so few of us out there. Um, And so I very timidly reached out to her and asked for some advice and asked for some feedback on an idea I was working on at the time. And she was super gracious and lending her mentorship and support. Um, And I'm so grateful that we've now been collaborators for several years. Thank you. Um, and Helen. Hi, um, I'm Helen Boskatten. I'm a lecturer in social research methods at the university. Uh, I also use she, her pronouns. And uh, yeah, I met Rebecca in a quite a similar way to the way that you did, Sarah, when I also reached out to her for advice because I was preparing uh, to apply for a PhD and, uh, and and had heard that Rebecca was a really good person to talk to. And so we had a cup of mint and licorice tea in her office at the Open University in about 2004. 
four or five, I think. Yeah, and 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 started talking and have and have been collaborating in yeah various activisty and academic uh, bits and pieces ever since. So yeah, kind of similar, kind of similar trajectories. So my research is about bisexuality, and I've particularly looked at uh, bisexual su subjectivity and bisexual communities and the ways in which people um, sort of understand and enact uh, bisexual identities in different social spaces and that's what my PhD uh, research was about uh, and these days I, I look at sort of similar things uh, across uh, EDI uh, issues particularly in education but always look at always that always with that lens of looking at the ways that people uh, can feel included or excluded in different kinds of spaces so yeah that's me. Great thank you so I thought we should maybe start with a bit of jargon busting uh, so what do we understand by bisexuality? How might that differ from queerness or pansexuality or omnisexuality or some of the other terms that people use? Uh, I'll start. I'll go first. So I kind of came into bisexual research at a time when there was lots and lots of discussion about the word bisexuality and where it fitted in and how it was useful and how it was not useful. And um, a lot for a lot of that time, the consensus has seemed to be, uh, it's really interesting because loads of the research on bisexuality is people being interviewed saying, I guess I'm bisexual, but I really don't like the word, <laughs> right? So there's always lots and lots of discussion about the word and whether people like the word or don't like the word. And where these discussions kind of usually end up is, but this is the world, this is a word that people know and people know what this means. So I'll use this word because at least it gives people a reference point. And then, and then they'll talk about all the things they, they don't like about the term. Um, so I think for me, the thing, when I think about bisexuality, I think about the way that this term has always, always, always been contested. And in some ways, actually, perhaps is less contested now than, than than it ever has been and has become much more mainstream uh you know in the last kind of 10 or 15 years uh but it's, it's always been a really contested term that's been my experience of it so far i would agree with that i've talked to a lot of folks through research who all have really widely varying definitions um and i think sometimes that contested nature comes out in that when I ask folks, how do you define bisexuality? Even if I say for yourself or like in your own life or in your own experience, a lot of times we'll, people will still feel like they're being tested um, or like they have to get the definition right. Uh, and so I, I often find myself kind of um, hedging those kinds of questions and asking folks like, it can mean something different for you than it does to other people. Um, and so I think we often come back to the idea of bisexuality means attractions to people of multiple sexes and genders. Um, sometimes folks think about that in a binary way. And I think that's where a lot of the con contestation comes from, that uh, the term can be limiting and exclusive in some ways. Um, I tend to use bisexuality to talk about myself and my own sexual identity, but I also use queerness. Um, and one of the reasons I can think of that I use both is because I like the flexibility of queerness um, and that it connects me to a different kind of community and umbrella terms and um, that kind of a basis of belonging. But I also love the history of bisexuality and doing research, particularly with a lot of folks who are older than me, sometimes by several decades, that term connects me to them in a different way than I um, and then I might feel a little bit more disconnected if I wasn't attached to that term or if I didn't embrace it for myself. 
Um, and so I love that it connects us to history and activism and community building. Um, and even though the term can be contested, I think it's really important that we still keep those um, discourses and those uh, contestations, those conversations around the term alive with us so that we can continue to revisit it and talk about what does bisexuality mean now, which might be different than 10 years ago, which might be different 10 years from now. Um, and so I, I embrace a lot of fluidity, I think, and self-determination around how folks choose to use those different labels. One of the really interesting uh, things that, that has come up sort of in, the, in in recent years has been this whole kind of sometimes tension, sometimes overlap, sometimes fluidity between talking about bisexuality and talking about pansexuality, uh, for example. So you sometimes see online these really heated discussions about wh which term is, is the superior term and how people, people ought to identify. And one of the interesting ways that I've seen that start to come out uh, in sort of online discussions, particularly recently, is where, where people are sometimes using bisexuality for attraction to more than one gender but where gender is a feature right so it's not like gender doesn't matter and I've started to see people talk about pansexuality as more of like attraction to people of more than one gender and and where gender isn't uh isn't salient in 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 the same in the same sort of way uh or or isn't yeah isn't 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 significant in the, in the same kind of way as it is for for bisexuality and i think that's really interesting and that again just kind of that just gives us a different way of talking about it and a different level of nuance that i think is really interesting and cool so one of the um issues i think that often comes up when people who aren't themselves um bisexual um or connected to bi communities are thinking about bisexuality is that um they get very hung up on bisexual identity and they say, you know, nobody calls themselves bisexual, hardly. Um, so why do we need to bother about it? Um, and I mean, obviously, anyway, you need to bother about very small minorities because that still matters. But also, I think there's sometimes um, people get over -foc focused on sexual identity um, and they don't think about behaviours and attractions um, and I think, uh, you know, for all sexual identities uh, or all sexual labels, the way that people identify doesn't line up with, you know, how they behave and it doesn't line up with who they're attracted to. Um, and I think particularly for bisexual sexuality and perhaps particularly for bisexuality among uh, people currently in their 60s, 70s, 80s, those often don't line up very well. And you get a lot more people who behave bisexually than identify as bisexual. Um, and both Sarah and I, I know, have interviewed older women who, um, because of that particular history around lesbian separatism um, in the sort of 70s, um, you know, don't describe themselves as bisexual because they see that as betraying their feminism, which is also hugely important to them. And, you know, being a lesbian is really important as a way, a way of saying that they are a woman-centred woman, even though they would absolutely acknowledge that they've had relationships with men and women and people of other genders across the course of their lives. So, you know, I think that distinction around um, the labels you use, the behaviours you have, and the attractions that you have is extra important in relation to bisexuality. I think that makes sense. And I think one of the things that's come out when I've talked to older women who aren't very attached to bisexuality as a label or a word um, is that they're much more attached to the way that 
living bisexual lives has impacted what they could do, right? Um, and so what I love about the flexibility and fluidity around this area of research is that folks will often find um, personal meanings that like, maybe it doesn't matter how society defines this thing, um, or maybe it doesn't matter what those larger contested meanings are in the in their own individual lives. But for them, being bisexual, having that avenue to be something different, something nonconformist, something non-traditional has given them a lot of possibility and potential. And the word freedom came up a lot when I talked to people about what does bisexuality mean to you or what has it meant over the course of your life. Um, and I love, I love that aspect of you know, self-definition and self-meaning um, that people can create those rich aspects of, you know, making sense out of who they are. And it's one of the reasons I love doing this area of research because it's so rich um, and there are so many amazing stories that kind of contextualize how people come go about making sense out of their identity um, or their lives as well. But it's an interesting tension, I think, because the lives are important, the behaviors, the attractions. Um, and at some points, language is also important to people. Um, so I feel a tension there in the literature and in activism spaces, too. Um, it reminds me of a story from Getting By, one of the bisexual anthologies, where a woman was talking about not knowing that there was a word for being bisexual until she was an adult or in, in midlife. Um, and saying, knowing that there was a word for this gave me an avenue to actually be bisexual. I didn't know that I had permission to do this until I knew that there was a word for it. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think it's so interesting to navigate that tension, right? Around like language can be really important for some people. Um, mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to mean everything to all people either. It's really interesting because I think coming to this from a kind of background in the sort of more activism and community spaces of research around bi, then actually a lot of the people that I've spoken to and interviewed, um, for them, the identity and being bisexual is really important and, and kind of rallying around that identity and being in spaces where that identity was recognised was was incredibly in, important for them. So um, often that, that was, you know, the source of some of their kind of internal tension because they found it very useful to have this uh, uh, there's a wonderful Joe, I think it's Joe Edie quote, where, where he says, you know, uh, that there's something really powerful about appearing under the sign while being really uh, deliberately vague about what the sign signifies. Um, and I think that's definitely true for lots of the people I spoke to where it, they they realise they, they, they often talked about the tension in their own identities between they used the word bisexual because it was a word that people knew but they very much rejected the idea that it was somehow binary or that it somehow split their sexuality down the middle 50 50 and that it had a gay side and a straight side so they would get you know like it's not like that it's not like that and they would very much um express their their experience of their sexuality was an experience of wholeness an experience of fluidity but also an experience of coherence and wholeness and everything fitting together and that the way that they moved through the world was this was this you know this this lovely kind of whole coherent experience but that wasn't necessarily recognized by other people in that way you know so there were all these assumptions that it must mean that they were somehow divided that they were somehow in conflict internally and that's not that wasn't their experience but their experience was that the conflict came between 
their internal sense of themselves and then what the outside world was telling them was giving them permission to be or not giving them permission to be. And so for those people that had found a space um, that had found a bisexual space is a convention space in the UK that, that they were going to every year and spending a long weekend with other bisexual people. For them, that experience was very, very powerful because it the, the space created a kind of bubble outside of the world where for once being a bisexual person was the default in that space. So for they weren't in an LGBT space where they were having to explain themselves or where they were feeling like they were flying under the radar or not be completely honest about who they are, who they were, or where they felt like they had to be quiet about the fact that they had a same-sex partner or something. So they were there was something very powerful for them about being in that space where they could be recognized as bisexual people. And one of the interesting effects for that that I didn't foresee when I started doing that research was that once they got into that space, they could almost leave their bisexuality behind because it wasn't something that they were constantly coming up against and having to kind of like articulate or think about or or feeling conflict about. So actually, they come into this bisexual space and they kind of almost park the bisexuality and they get to be all the other bits of themselves. You know, so there's this great sense of being able to bring all of themselves to this space and something that that often was foregrounded in a way that felt quite conflictual could just kind of take a back seat and they could get on with other stuff. So it's really interesting, isn't it, to explore all these tensions between the way the way that labels work for and against people and the way that they work inside the spaces and outside the spaces and between spaces. And of course, between all the different identities in those spaces because you know then we've got the whole issue of intersectionality and the way that those labels work you know in different ways across different communities across different parts in the life course as well so it's just a really fascinating a fascinating area of research I think. I think this conversation makes it really clear that um, what you hear about bisexuality will change depending on what group of bisexual people you talk to right um, that activist spaces look really different from non-activist spaces. And mm. a lot of the folks that I've talked to um, haven't been deeply involved in activism. And for many of them, don't even have another bisexual person of the same age range in their lives. And so, um, you know, that personal internal meaning making is so important because it's it's the only anchor that they have in a lot of ways. Um, and so it's it's fascinating to think about, you know, how community shapes and, and validates or makes legible the different ways that we show up in spaces. Um, and the, the intersectionality bit I always find fascinating. Um, as a biracial person, one of the things that I've heard is that sometimes folks who are bisexual and biracial or who have other like liminal identities um, find more freedom and like flexibility in bisexuality because they're used to navigating liminality in other spaces of their lives. Mm. Um, and that's definitely something that, that I have experienced and that I've, I've heard from some of the folks I've talked to as well. So the liminality of identity, I think is, is such a fascinating frontier for research. I think I just want to sort of go back a little bit to something that Rebecca said earlier, because you were saying about like, I know you didn't mean it this way, but you were saying, oh, people don't identify as bisexual, you know, and of course people do identify as bisexual or, or they use a whole range of different terms or they don't identify, but they have that behavior or, or whatever. And I, I think that that's really interesting. And the thing that I kind of wanted to sort of, I suppose, bring forward about that is that, is that, so in some ways, bisexual people are often positioned as a minority within the LGBT movement. But of course, as as 
as you're aware, and as lots of listeners will be aware, you know, bisexual people are, are the, the biggest uh, of the LGBT identities. And there are more bisexual people than there are uh, lesbian or gay people, uh, for example. Research like quite consistently shows that. So, uh, yeah, although we're although bi people and bisexuality is kind of often marginalized within queer and LGBT spaces, it's actually a really big group of people as a proportion of that, um, as a proportion of those communities. And I think that that's really important to bear in mind that it's a, a big, diverse group of people with lots and lots of different experience, lots of different identities, and uh, yeah, loads of really interesting stuff to think about. Yeah, and that's absolutely one of the, the really tricky issues, isn't it? Because you know, very often when people do research about LGBT something or other, they will only get a very small number, a small percentage of respondents who are ticking the buy box. You know, they will get right. like 10 percent or something. Um, and, um, you know, often that then leads them to do something like they put the buy women with the lesbians and they put the buy men with the men, kind of with this assumption that gender is more important than mono or not mono sexual identities. Um, which might winds me up, um, as you might have deduced. It makes um, really bad data often, doesn't and it? It's, really you know? bad data. Yes. <laughs> it's making an assumption that gender is the salient thing here, and mm. it might not be. Um, but as, as Helen says, if you ask people in another context, you get far more people saying that they have bisexual attractions or behaviours or, uh, or even identities. Uh, than lesbian or gay so I, I find that a real puzzle and I, 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 I don't quite know what to make of that except I think that um, uh, surveys of LGBT something or other tend to go to networks that are predominantly made up of lesbians and gay men um, and increasingly some trans folk um, but you know there isn't there aren't a lot of bi people in those kind of um, groups I would say partly because those groups have historically not been very welcoming um, you know mm. have been quite sort of you know you can only join if you've got a uh, same-sex partner or you you know you, you that sort of if you're mm. Uh, if you count fit our definition of bi people. I mean, I think that has also been the case in relation to trans people. LGBT spaces have not been very welcoming yeah. of trans people. But I see that changing. That seems to me to be changing on the whole. I mean, with a few notable exceptions, but on the whole, uh, I think um, LGBT mm. spaces are much more inclusive of trans people than they were 10 or 15 years ago. Um, but I don't think they've got any better on bi inclusion, if I'm honest. Mm. Yeah, sometimes I like to um, think about the like the beautiful possibilities of liminal space. And by liminal, I, I mean, like folks who are in between places, right? They, they have a foot in two worlds. They don't necessarily feel a sense of belonging strongly in one necessary place. And um, while I think that can be freeing for folks, it can also be really isolating um, to not be able to feel or find that like really solid in-group in any space in your life. Um, and I think that's that's definitely one of the the kind of deep, deep hurts that I see coming out of this area of, of literature and research, um, both for older folks and like across lots of generations, right? That folks are searching for that place in their lives where they feel um, understood, like they don't have to explain themselves, um, 
like they don't have to uh, worry or or hold off stereotypes that folks might attach to the way that they present or to the label that they might use. Um, so I think that's it's a fascinating lifelong struggle, I think, for a lot of folks that they bring forward of, you know, how do I navigate that um, and find community despite this um, this fluid and flexible nature that can sometimes give me a really strong sense of, of freedom. Um, so it's another one of those, those interesting tensions. Mm. I think we've been naming a lot of the complexities, right? Like the things that we don't necessarily see in survey responses when we ask people about their sexual identities or orientations and um, the nuance and richness of people's lives. And I think, it reminds me of how I got into doing this area of research to begin with, because um, I was working on a large national scale study of LGBTQ folks across the U.S. who were all 50 and older. Um, and this was a little over a decade ago. And I think at the time there was still kind of a feeling that bisexual folks in terms of health equity and health outcomes were probably doing OK, like they had the access to passing privilege. They didn't have maybe the same victimization and discrimination histories that lesbian women and gay men did. Um, and so I didn't at the time think that there was going to be an avenue for me to actually make a career out of bisexuality and aging research. Um, and it wasn't until I actually started digging into the data and, and you know, identifying some of those findings that showed me that bisexual folks were actually doing worse in many of our, our notable outcomes, particularly in terms of their mental health. Mm. Um, and it became this, this like puzzle that I really needed to know why. And I have a very distinct memory of, you know, I was doing tons of data entry as a doctoral student and sitting with surveys after surveys of like entering, you know, these small data points that make up people's lives, right? And I remember entering one survey from an older bisexual woman who was in her 60s. And I just left with this overwhelming feeling that like things were fine for her, but they weren't great. And I, I wanted to know how my future could be brighter and how it could be better. Um, and there were so many folks in my social circle who were also younger bisexual or queer identified folks. And I looked around at them and thought, you know, how can our, our futures maybe look a little bit different than this? And I think, a big part of that starts from acknowledging that there's a problem. Um, and so those big survey-based studies are so important for illustrating those patterns and illustrating um, where those problems are that we need to solve. Um, and I know my social work background also drove me to think of like, where are the points of intervention, right? Where could we make a, a meaningful difference in people's lives? And to me, unpacking and unraveling those pathways that construct our mental health, that construct our, our well-being, um, starts with understanding the really lived in depth complexity of people's lives and building up from there to understand where are the points of potential intersection um, with services where folks could actually, you know, experience a really significant change in the trajectory of their mental health as well. And I think that's that's one of the things that brings all three of us together as life course researchers, even though we focus on different age groups and populations. Yes, I think you're, that's such an important point that we haven't mentioned so far that it's very consistent across lots of research that bisexual people have worse 
mental health particularly than uh, lesbians or gay men um, and sometimes other measures of um, like social connectedness um, and well you're the expert on this Sarah but but you know it is it is very consistent across lots of so that is one reason that we need research about bisexuality is to try and uh, to improve improve things uh, for bi people. And on that cliffhanger, we end part one. Make sure you do tune in to part two, where Helen, Rebecca and Sarah will be talking a little bit about their research approaches and some of their research experiences when connecting with the bi and queer community, particularly paying attention to some of the creative methods that they've used. But before you tune in, this is just a friendly reminder to like and subscribe our podcast. It is called the Sex, Research and Resistance podcast with The Open University. Thank you.